Welcome to the Convex Conversation with me, journalist Helen Fospero. Today's guest spent 20 years as an RAF fast jet pilot, flying aircraft like the Harrier on exercises and frontline duties all over the world. More recently, he was instrumental in bringing the RAF's newest fighter, the F-35 Lightning, into active service. Air Vice Marshal Harv Smith has recently taken on a brand new role. He's the first ever head of the UK Space Directorate, leading and forming space domain strategy, policy and capability for the UK military. Today I'm at Convex in the city to find out exactly what being the MOD's Director Space UK means and to explore the challenges which are sure to lie ahead. Air Vice Marshal, it's great to see you today. Thank you for making time for us. How the devil are you? I'm very good, Helen. Thank you very much for the opportunity to come. It's brilliant and it's not often in my working day that I get to uh, just carve a little bit of time out to talk about me. And most people will tell you, there's a standing joke in the Royal Air Force, which you probably aren't aware of, but it goes something like, how do you know there's a Harrier pilot in the room? Don't worry, they'll quickly tell you. (laughs) Um, So it's not often I get a chance to sit and talk about doing that type of stuff. So that would be quite nice. Looking forward to it. And thanks again for having me. It's a pleasure. And being a man from Northern Ireland, I'm just sorry that we haven't popped a half a Guinness in front of you for your tent. Yeah, a half. Yeah, yeah. that's schoolgirl era, wasn't it? <laughs> I'm excited, Harv, about your new role. And if I'm being honest with you, I don't completely understand what it is. But anything with this word space in the title sounds like the stuff of schoolboy dreams. Tell us more about it and what you're actually doing. So I'm the first in, I think, uh, just to summarise, the, the role is effectively to grip what defence is doing with space and to cohere all of our efforts. I think if you look back over the last few decades, UK defence does a lot in space and with space as a domain, but we haven't necessarily cohered that in a meaningful way. And there there hasn't definitely hasn't been a strategy uh, so that we have this uh, golden thread from delivering capabilities and programmes and hooking those to a strategy so that we can properly understand, here's why we're spending taxpayers' money on this stuff. Uh, so I guess about two years ago, I... Ministry of Defence decided that it needed a director to come in and to act as what we've been calling the belly button for defence space. And after what was the first job interview I had done since I was 15 years old, (laughs) maybe we can come back to that later, I, I was lucky enough, probably more through luck than judgment, to get the job. Um, It's been an absolute privilege to start with this relatively greenfield site and build what has now become a pretty ambitious UK space programme beyond where we were before, which was mostly focused on military strategic communications through satellite communications to allow us to communicate around the globe. We've built a much, much more ambitious programme. Not only that, last year we managed to land successfully land the narrative not just within our own department but cross government and secure a bunch of new money which will now allow us to 
build the programs and build the capabilities. Interestingly, as, as I kind of settled into the job, we very quickly realized, well, one of the first questions I asked was, okay, I understand who I work to in MOD. That's fairly easy to work out, being typically military. We like command chains. We like understanding who's your one and two up boss. So that was very easy to work out. But one of the first questions was across government. I mean, surely we're not doing this on our own. Across government, who are my equivalents in all the other departments like transport, business? Who are the other me's? And then who do we all work for? There must be somebody we work for in government that's delivering like a national space program. What's that look like? And how do I contribute to it? And actually, after a couple of months of asking that question and not getting the answer, I realized it's because none of that really exists. And so the job has actually been as much about the cross-government work and pulling together a cross-government national strategy. Uh, and in doing that, I've worked very closely with a new colleague, a lady called Rebecca Everton, who's now become my opposite number within the business department. And Rebecca is now effectively on point for the civil side of space. And I'm on point for the military side of space. And between the two of us, we're delivering a national space program for the UK, which is coherent internationally as well. So we're all plugged in with all the different nations that you would think that we would be plugged in with, USA, etc. And then we report up to a new National Space Council, which is chaired by the Prime Minister, and again, as a quirk of this job, I have the enormous privilege of sitting on the National Space Council, which, like I say, PM chaired. Most of the senior members of the cabinet are represented on the council. We're meant to meet once a month. We don't necessarily make it every month because the standard uh, drama that is running a country sometimes gets in the way of the PM's diary being able to do that. But it's been brilliant as the only military person to be sat at that kind of board. And to be the only person sat in uniform sometimes means that when there's a hard question, everybody looks at me, which is <laughs> slightly disconcerting, but yeah, great opportunity. And actually, really beyond the space stuff, which is hugely interesting, it's just been great to get a little peek behind the curtain of how government works, how number 10 works, how cabinet office works. And it's not that often in the military you get to see that broader kind of machinery of government in play. And all the different nuances that are there that sometimes we in the military, we don't necessarily see that. We tend to be fairly black and white in how we do our business. You know, work out, what's the problem? How am I going to solve it? We're absolutely about solving problems and get to the answer and then execute the answer and move on. It's not necessarily always that easy in the broader cross-government debate. That's been brilliant learning for me alongside learning all about space because I'm new to this game, you know. I've only been doing it for a couple of years and a couple of decades worth of being a fighter pilot hasn't necessarily taught me everything I should know to become in and be UK's first director space. So it's been a fairly vertical learning curve, but that in itself has been invigorating. I think one thing that now you've made me feel not embarrassed to ask, and I did feel slightly embarrassed to ask, when we say space, what are we talking about? What altitude, perhaps above the Earth's surface? That's a brilliant question. I think the accepted norm is this idea of what's called the Kármán line, which is roughly about 100 kilometres up. 
translate that into in the order of 63 miles. So anything that's 63 miles or above, then you're technically in space. So there was quite a lot of discussion around when Sir Richard Branson flew on his first trip. They got to 50 odd miles. And if you notice in the press releases, there was some subtle language there about flying to the edge of space. Whereas when Jeff Bezos recently launched in his Blue Origin rockets, uh, they went beyond 63 and were very clear about the fact that he'd gone into space. So it's interesting watching these billionaires compete uh, to see what they can and can't achieve. And so the language is quite key, but... That idea of the Carmen line in around the 100 kilometers mark is certainly where we start space at. And then it just keeps going. There's kind of two things about space. One is about looking from Earth into space and understanding what's going on out there. And I've had some brilliant conversations with people like Professor Brian Cox. This generation's Sir Patrick Moore and is all about black holes and trying to explain, can you do time travel and all of this stuff that makes my tiny brain hurt. <laughs> uh, but uh, interestingly, Brian, I think you know, is a co-patron of the John Egging Trust with me. So he and I have done a couple of things on space. And it's interesting because his focus tends to be standing on Earth, looking out into space, whereas my focus tends to be getting into space and then looking back at Earth. So they're two subtly different approaches, but they're complementary. And you need to kind of understand both to really properly use the space domain in the best way. But at the moment, our big focus from UK is what's called low Earth orbit. So low Earth orbit is where the International Space Station flies, about 600 kilometers up. So when you think about it, it's actually pretty close to Earth. You know, if you're stood at Land's End, it's further to get to the other end of the UK than it is to get to the space station. Gosh, that's an interesting way of putting so it. So it, yeah. it is pretty close, yeah. So the yeah, space station flies about 600 kilometers up. Most of the little satellites that are flying around in a low Earth orbit are between 500 and 1,000 kilometers above the Earth. They travel around the Earth once in about 90 minutes. They're traveling at about five miles per second. So they're traveling pretty damn quick. And the physics, once you kind of get up into microgravity, the physics of how things work, how they operate, how to maneuver them around, they're just completely different. You can't take years of flying a fast jet and apply that thinking or that learning to space. It's remarkably different because you're relying on the Earth's gravity to do a lot of the work for you. And that sometimes is 180 degrees out from where your brain might think, you know, if you want to go lower, you might actually speed your satellite up so that it goes faster, which means it gets more gravitational pull, which means it gets pulled closer to the Earth. So it's all a little bit backwards. So low Earth orbit's a real big focus for us in the UK because it's easy to access. It's relatively cheap to get there. And that's where you want your satellites that are going to be observing the Earth for things like working out climate change, impact, coastal erosion, agriculture, all of that kind of business. You're close enough that you can use cameras and optical devices to really properly see what's going on. And obviously, from a military perspective, there's that other kind of military edge of using it for surveillance to be able to track bad guys and do all that kind of military business that we do. 
It said in the job description, space is fundamental to the delivery of military capability and to the functioning of wider society. That's what I was going to ask you to expound on and help us understand yeah. why, which I'm sure you prepped yourself well for, for your first interview since yeah. you were 15. Uh, yeah, exactly right. Actually, at my interview to get this job, I didn't get one question about space. Did you not? What did they ask you nope. about? It was all about leadership. Was it? It was all about standing up new teams, working with uh, challenging partners, examples of where I've collaborated in the past with maybe quite a disparate and eclectic bunch of leaders to try to bring them all onto the same song sheet. And I, just through my career, I've I had lots of opportunity to be in those type of circumstances. So that's what kind of got me through to win the job. It wasn't the fact that I uh, was a space expert, far from it. In fact, I started my interview by saying two things. This is the first interview I've done since I was 15, go easy. <laughs> and secondly, I don't know anything about space. So let's start from there and we'll work forward with the interview. And actually, they didn't ask me a single question about it. I would presume, uh, though, so that being a fast jet pilot, with the experience that you've got behind you in the military, they probably presume that any subject you can actually get your head around. And actually, the important well, thing, as you say, is is leadership, isn't it? And, and leading a team and leading a new yeah. team. Yeah. So what's interesting, when you joined the Royal Air Force, and maybe we'll come back to this, because I kind of fell into it, almost by mistake it you know most people you say oh, why did you want to be a fighter pilot and they'll tell you they when they were five they saw the red arrows display or somebody forced them to watch top gun <laughs> or there'd be some story it wasn't that at all for me but maybe we can come back to that later but i think when you join certainly to be a fighter pilot you spend the first 10 years of your life in the service living in the cockpit of an airplane. I mean, you're becoming one with your machine and being an expert at that. You don't really realize it, but just with the jobs that we do and how you kind of lead other airplanes and some of the predicaments you find yourself in, it is honing all of your leadership skills. And importantly, it's honing your ability to do a really quick risk analysis and that risk tends to be, if I don't get this right, I'm probably going to kill myself. So you get really pretty damn good at doing risk analysis quickly on the fly, as it were. And you get really good at making decisions and it's not dithering because when you're traveling around at seven or eight miles a minute, a hundred feet from the earth, doing some sort of low level mission, you don't necessarily have time to dither. So you've got to make a decision get after it and then be able to analyze that as you go along. And if it wasn't quite right, be able to do the test and adjust on the fly. So those skills, when you're a pilot on the squadrons and you're off doing your thing, you don't really realize that you're honing all of those skills. And it's only then in later career when you come into staff appointments or leading big programs or some of the stuff that I've done in later career, like this job, that all those skills really come to the fore. And sometimes it's actually catches me a bit by surprise when I meet other people who've been in defense or civil service or other roles, but they haven't necessarily had all those experiences of, you know, flying jets to aircraft carriers or being shot at in an airplane over certain parts of the world where you've got to be pretty quick at making decisions on what your next action is going to be. Sometimes it frustrates me when I meet people that they kind of make a profession out of dithering around decision-making. It is a great boot camp for becoming a good risk analyzer, someone who can manage risk, not necessarily risk tech, but manage risk. 
and someone who can make decisions and test and adjust as they go forward. And I think that has really helped in later career, particularly where I've had some really quite tricky and difficult problems to solve with uh, some quite eclectic teams, you know, a mix of quite eclectic people in a team. There's tons of examples of that, but I don't know how we ended up in this rabbit hole. You asked me a different question and I've, <laughs> There's I've so done much. the Irish thing of taking you no, off. No, you haven't. There's so much I want to ask, but just if we finish off on space, you are in uncharted waters because this is a newly created job. So I would imagine that comes with great excitement, that it's new and that you can yeah. forge ahead with your team in your kind of way. But what are the biggest challenges do you think that you're going to face with this job? I think, I mean, without uh, wanting to be overly down on it, the biggest challenge with all of these programs is, will the resource match the ambition? So, you know, I can tell you categorically at the National Space Council, thankfully, we have a chairman there in the form of our current prime minister whose ambition for space is huge, you know, and he sees all the positive stuff that could come from it. Everything from the STEM outreach to kids. It's an exciting topic, which is great for national prestige and you can, you know, global Britain standing on its own feet with its own space program, launching rockets from UK, launching satellites from UK soil. And we're, we're doing all of that. And next year, you'll see our first space launches out of UK happen. And you know, that'll be a big deal. And it's a real tangible, example of how we've stepped forwards in a more meaningful way with our approach to space. That side of it, the ambition, I think we're there. The challenge will be getting the resource in the right place when, you know, I'm not naive enough to think that I'm going to get gazillions amount of money to do all of this. And space ain't cheap. It costs money to get stuff to space. It costs money to build things to go into space. Space is a very, very a unrelenting environment, you know, can go from the extremes of heat to the extremes of cold in not very much time. Solar radiation can be particularly challenging on equipment, particularly sensitive equipment, electronic equipment. So, you know, it's not cheap to get stuff into space. So if you're going to do it and you're going to spend taxpayers' money to do it, then you've got to be absolutely sure that you're doing it in a way where you're not taking unwarranted risk it's got to be the right thing. There's got to be an absolute requirement for it. You've got to do it in the best value for money approach that we can. And that's a lot of the work that we've been doing recently as we build a new space program for the UK. How do we do that in a way where we get much more bang for our buck? We're exploring options for what we call dual use capability. So, you know, let's say in layman's terms, if I have half a dozen satellites in low Earth orbits, and their surveillance, they've got cameras and stuff on them. On one pass, they could be doing, collecting data to answer some questions about agriculture for DEFRA, because it's been a particularly warm summer and we want to see how it's impacted crops. On the next 90 minutes, it could be uh, doing some work for the Home Office to track smuggling in the UK. On the next pass, it could be doing something for defence. On the next pass, it could be doing something for to answer a climate change problem. So this idea of multi-use, put it up once, but put it up in a way that it can be used for multiple different departments so you get absolute maximum bang for the buck. The days of defence just having our own Gucci kit that we just use for ourselves, those days are few and far between. The last point I'd Beck, and I think this was the question you asked and I deflected, so I will answer. <laughs> On the importance of space, why is it important? And this is a super key question because 
there's a massive requirement to educate the nation on this. And I've become a little bit of an evangelist on it, so apologies in advance. But we're all hooked to space. If you want to get money out of the hole in the wall, that machine's hooked to space. You know, the precision navigation timing signals coming from GPS, particularly those timing signals, they underpin every financial transaction in this country, unless you're going to deal in cold, hard cash. They underpin all of it. Without that timing, the financial sector comes grinding to a halt. Traffic lights turn green at the right time because they're linked to space. Tesco deliveries, telemedicine, safe air traffic control above Heathrow. You know, the reason we can put airplanes a minute and a half apart with 250 people in each one and land them safely in the weather because they're linked to space. So it is fundamental to everything we do in modern day life. And that's before I start talking about the really high end stuff that we use it for in the military, which obviously gets quickly classified. But just day-to-day business, you know, if you take your phone out of your pockets, as I did to try and find this rather phenomenal building I'm sad. <laughs> Quite beautiful, this. isn't it? <laughs> um, it's brilliant, yeah. Wish I worked here. MOD's nice, but it's not as nice as this. <laughs> uh, but, you know, you put, I'm like, I'm not quite sure I know where I am here. And you pull your phone out and then 30 seconds later, I'm stood at the front door. And that's because that phone's linked to space. You know, most people now wearing smartwatches that will tell them, how many steps they've done today or where they went or you know how well they slept linked to space so it absolutely underpins everything we do in in modern life and just to be kind of serious for a moment those all the nations that may wish to gain advantage on us get up to nefarious activity or achieve advantage in whatever market it's not lost on them that in western modern digital society we are so fundamentally reliant on space. So tinkering around the edges of space could create mayhem in this country. You know, so those timing signals that I talked about, they are to nanoseconds of accuracy. If you introduce a one second error into the timing, that manifests itself in a 938 million foot error in navigation. Oh my goodness. So what would that mean to shipping trying to navigate the channel? What would that mean to huge airliners trying to be safe above Heathrow? It's that fundamental reliance and the fact that there are those out there in the world, whether we like it or not, may be minded to tinker with that. So from a defense perspective, my kind of real role is to make sure we understand that and to put in place policies, plans, and capabilities that allow us to understand it and to protect and defend against it. No different than in my last job when I ran effectively the combat arm of the Royal Air Force. If the Russians fly one of their big nuclear bombers down towards Scotland, as soon as they poke their nose into our airspace, we have a Typhoon fighter jet set in our cockpit, escorting them back out of the airspace to protect the nation, to protect our sovereign airspace above the nation. So it's no different than what we've been doing since the Battle of Britain in the Second World War with airspace. We're now just getting around to the fact that we think, well, we know we need to be having a similar approach to space. Otherwise, that idea of those that might want to tinker with it, causing mayhem in our modern life. 
And there's no way I would have found this building without it. (laughs) Well, I'm glad you did. A couple of things just before we leave this alone. On a lighter note, you know, you touched on Richard Branson going to the edge of space and Jeff Bezos and stuff. You've been immersed in all of this for the last couple of years. If you ever got the opportunity to go out and do, for example, what Richard Branson did, would you be first in line? I can't believe you even asked me that question. (laughs) Because the answer is yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Get me, get me back to Earth would be your challenge. <laughs> what's super exciting for me is what SpaceX are doing, Elon Musk's company. And whilst it's not necessarily directly linked to what we're doing with the military side, but you know, Elon Musk's kind of push with SpaceX is about getting to Mars. And when you look at everything that SpaceX are doing at present with supplying the space station with bringing rockets back to earth and reusing them again some some have been reused up towards 10 times that that's never happened before they've just won the contract to look at a trip to the moon 2024 uh, the artemis accords are all now in place so humans back on the moon by the middle of this decade, including the first female, a permanent lunar base, a lunar space station to resupply, and then using that as a lily pad to then step forward to Mars, that within the next 10 years, we could have humans on Mars. This next 10 years to me is every bit as exciting, important, dramatic, all of those words, as the 10 years that preceded Neil Armstrong stepping out onto the moon. And I really do believe that. I think within our time in the next 10, 20 years, we'll see this dramatic change in space where not only is it becoming cheaper to access it, but we're also developing the technology that we can go further and do more with it. What's that going to be like when we have a permanent human presence on the moon? Within the next 10 years, will there be a headline where the first human baby was born on the moon? You know, And then you get into all these, dis- these questions of, well, is that is that still a human baby? Because it wasn't born on Earth. What do we do about that? What's that look like? So, I mean, it just really starts to stretch your thinking on what's this all mean? Because we've not done this before. It's proper, proper human exploration. I don't have answers to any of this, by the way. (laughs) I just think it's very exciting to be part of it, you know, and to try to work out, okay, if we go to Mars, if we go to the moon, if we develop the technology that allows us to do things like asteroid mining. They've already proven with some of these small probes that there are asteroids out there that we can get to that have within one square meter of that asteroid, they've got more precious metals like platinum, etc., than you could find on Earth in 10 football pitches worth. And as technology develops on our ability to go to space and bring that, those types of metals back in an economically viable way, All of that will happen. And as we've seen, as humans do things like that, once there becomes an economic edge to it, then with that comes the other side of human nature, which is, well, other people are going to try and steal it. And if it's part and parcel of UK security and UK prosperity, then this plays back into the military role. What's the military's role in you know, our core role is to protect and defend the interests of the nation. That's why, that's what we do. That's why we're here. Well, how's that work in space? How's that work if we end up with good guys and bad guys living together on the moon? Do we have to protect that? And if we do, what's that look like? You know, we're just nowhere near there in answering those questions, but we're going to have to close with them in this decade because all of those things are going to happen. 
and they're not in the control of state governments because it's billionaires doing it. Elon Musk's going to Mars whether you like it or not. And when he builds a new rocket and it fails, he's got the financial backing to have another go at fixing it. It's a wonder that you're sleeping at night with all this going on. But I'm just wondering, (laughs) when you were a little boy, Harv, growing up in Northern Ireland, did you ever think that you'd be sitting today talking about this extraordinary new role for you involving space? Not at all. I had quite an interesting upbringing because I grew up in County Armagh in Northern Ireland, right at the height of the Troubles, so through the 70s and the 80s. In and around where I live, it was colloquially known as bandit country. The police didn't go there. The army, you know, it was only patrolled by helicopter. Lots of bombings, lots of shootings. It was a particularly strange place. I say that now with hindsight. At the time, it was normal. You grow up, it's like kids anywhere in the world. What they grow up in is what is normal. So to me, it was just normal. The fact that some days you try to go to school and you couldn't get to school because a bomb had gone off and it had blown up the whole of the main street in the local town. Or the train line that we used to have to cross to get to my college. Once a month, they'd close it all off because there would be bombs on the train line to try to disrupt the whole daily life that was all part of it. So it was interesting growing up and all of that. It's only as I've kind of moved away and later life kind of had my own kids and everything. And you look back on it going, you know, why the bloody hell did we stay there? We should have just moved. But I guess, you know, that's that's just the way it was. So actually, you know, I come from a very normal working class background. My dad's a blacksmith. My mum worked in a linen mill. You know, I grew up in a hard working family where, you know, school holidays happened. I would work on the local farm or whatever, you know, that everybody worked. It was nobody went to uni. You left school at 15, you got a job, the end. So I'm kind of the black sheep of the family because I kind of broke out of that. And that happened more through luck than judgment because in my school, two things happened. One, I fell into an organization called the Army Cadet Force. You can join when you're 13, 14, all the way to your 18. And it's military type stuff, which kind of interested me because I quite like the whole outdoors adventure and all of that. So I joined that and actually became instantly addicted to it because I really liked the regiment. I liked being part of a team. I liked the opportunity for leadership chances. You kept fit. You, know, you were always away at the weekends doing things like upsailing and canoeing. Those didn't feature in my normal family life. You were either at school or you were working. It was kind of one or the other. So the army cadets was one thing. And then the other, when I was about 14, 15, the recruitment people, military recruitment folk, came to school and they gave this pitch on, it was an Air Force person, Navy, Army, and they all gave a 10-minute pitch each. And I kind of walked out of that, commenting to one of my friends. Actually, he had said to me, oh, you you really like that Army thing, because I was in the Army cadets. And I said, actually, quite fancy that Air Force. Air Force looks good. And it's weird, because in Northern Ireland, when I grew up there, there was no Air Force. Because, you know, not like in the mainland, where you'd see jets flying around and stuff. Never saw that in Northern Ireland. They weren't allowed to fly there. All we ever saw were helicopters ferrying troops around. And normally they'd fly literally just over the chimney top of the house, particularly where I lived. And right on the border there, they would be zipping around at treetop height. And, 
we all just assumed that that was the army. The reality was, now that I know better, it's actually the Royal Air Force did all of that work. But we just saw it as there's the army again doing its thing. So I never really understood what the Royal Air Force was about. Never seen the Red Arrows, never saw a fast jet, nothing. But this guy had given a 10-minute pitch on I thought, actually, that looks like it's pretty exciting. And one of my teachers overheard me talking about it. And she actually helped put in place an interview for me at Old Grove. And to cut a long story short, I went to that interview. The first one lasted about 10 minutes. They told me to go away and learn a bit more about the Air Force. They sent me away with a huge, big armful of books. Come back next year, learn more about the Air Force. The irony was, his first question was, can you tell me the difference between a Hercules and a Harrier? Oh, I can. And for the, right, so there you go. <laughs> the Hercules but, pilot doesn't tell you when he comes into the pub that he flies a Hercules. Yeah, that's right. I've flown that's in right. a Hercules, actually. There you go. Anyway, he told me come back in a year. I actually came back in about the next month. He was like, yeah, what are you doing? What are you doing back here? I was like, I've read all those books. I'll have another go at your interview, please. And off the back of that, I got offered to go to Biggin Hill, as it were then, where we did officer and air crew selection. So this is the interview that I did when I was 15. You spend a week, you do various interviews, you do leadership tasks, medicals, all of this kind of stuff. And aptitude testing, which was, you know, can you, you know, rub your tummy and pat your head at the same time? Those sorts of coordination things. Before we had the days of computers, it was all a little bit Heath Robinson for sure. So we did all of that. And then I came home. First time I'd ever left Northern Ireland, never flown on a plane before. Got the BA shuttle to Aldergrove, tried to navigate the tube, which I remember to this day thinking that's a May day and still think that. And <laughs> um, ended up, I have no idea how I got the caught a bus to South Bromley or wherever to get to Biggin Hill, but I ended up there and ended up getting home. And then about a month later, this brown envelope arrived. I was like, oh, what's this? And they offered me a sixth form scholarship. So they would pay me a little bit of money to stay on for my sixth form, lower and upper, and get A-levels. And if I did that, and as long as I achieved the grades the teacher said I could sensibly achieve, then that would guarantee me a slot when I was 18 to join the REF. So I went, okay, I'll take your money, thanks. And uh, great. And then quickly, once I'd said yes to that, quickly on the heels of it, they came back to me with another brown envelope saying, and by the way, your aptitude for pilot was quite high. We'd like to offer you a flying scholarship. So the Air Force then paid for me when I was 16 to go off to Aldergrove and get my pilot's license. So that was the kind of the start of it. And I ended up kind of coming into the Air Force when I was just turned 18. And did you fall in love, Harv, with flying straight away? I loved it, yeah. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. I joked about it earlier about becoming at one with the machine. But there is a little bit of that, you know, you, uh, particularly in later career when I ended up flying the Harrier. So the Harrier is a really tricky airplane to fly. It's very unforgiving. If you get it wrong, it can really bite you. It has killed a lot of people. It's caused a lot of people to have to eject, me being one of them. Oh, really? Did um, you eject? Yeah. I did, yeah. We had Patty on our so, podcast. He ejected as well in Afghanistan. Yeah. Where did you eject? I ejected in Germany. I was just coming into land. I had a, a big major bird strike. Big bird of prey went down the engine. Engine catastrophically destroyed itself. Jet stopped flying. I ejected just before I hit the ground. 
So I was very lucky. Martin Becker, I always take the opportunity to say thank you to Martin Becker. They make very good ejection seats. They originated with James Martin in Northern Ireland, and I'm very proud of that. Because you ejected quite low, were you okay? You know, I know you can get quite badly injured, can't you? I lost just shy of an inch in height. Did you? So I went from 6'3 to 6'2, which was very disconcerting. (laughs) Yeah, because it compresses all of your spine and all all those, the cartilage and everything between all your bones all gets squished in this kind of pretty dramatic joyride that you have on this rocket seat. I only got one swing in the parachute before I hit the ground, so I was really low. Very, very lucky, actually. If it had been a tenth of a second later, I wouldn't have survived it, so I was very lucky. But I walked away from it with bar later life back problems, which I still have to manage today. I walked away without kind of dramatically breaking anything. But, you know, people think it's a parachute like you'd see a parachutist it's the, the parachutes are much smaller than that they're there as people have always told me these parachutes are here to save your life not your bones so it's not a sports parachute where you do this lovely little deft flare and you land gracefully on the earth it's the equivalent as i'm told to jump wearing all your kit and jumping off the roof of a double-decker bus onto the pavement that's what it's like so you hit the ground and what we refer to as a clatter of bits and uh, if some people break things, some people don't. And I was very lucky that I, I didn't and just walked away from it. So it was a, yeah, interesting experience. And what you was get a, a very nice tie from... Do you? From Martin Baker? You get, you get a nice tie from Martin Baker. Yeah, you join the Martin Baker club. It's not a club, um, actually, I feel I need to be in. But is, I'm sure it's a privilege yeah. to, to have one of them. Yeah, what other aircraft yeah. did you fly, Harv? And what were some of your finest memories, you know, throughout that period? Through training, you fly all sorts from little tiny airplanes up to jets. So you start off, I started off in this, the queen of the skies called the Chipmunk, which are very old now. We only have a couple left in the service and they fly on the, actually fly on the Battle of Britain Memorial flight. And we use Chipmunks to train people prior to then flying Spitfires and Hurricanes as part of our heritage flying. The Chipmunk's cracking little airplane, really, really very good. And then I flew the Tucano, which again, ironically is built in Belfast in shorts. We don't have them anymore in the service. We faced them out a few years ago, which having been on one of the very first Tucano courses and being still in the service to see the airplane go out of service makes me feel very old. (laughs) And then I flew the Hawk, which is the same airplane that the Red Arrows fly. Only we flew the Grey Hawks, which we could do more kind of fighter pilot training in. Um, so you don't do love hearts in the sky in those. No, we don't do that. <laughs> you know, we do our combat training and bombing and stuff to kind of hone your skills as a fighter pilot. And then at the end of your Hawk training, in my day, that's when you got your fighter pilot wings. And then you would be what we call role disposed to a jet to go to the front line. And for me, it was very lucky to go to the Harrier, which I spent a good 15 years plus flying in and out of different frontline jobs. Again, there became a little bit of a standing joke that every squadron I went to, we ended up on some new combat operation somewhere. So people were dreading me being posted to the squadron, but we went from all through Bosnia in the 90s, the Kosovo war back end of the 90s, into Iraq and Afghanistan, and then multiple, multiple tours in Afghanistan and the likes. I kind of cut my teeth flying Harrier. I was the Harrier display pilot for a while, which was always good to be, 
you do that little bow to the crowd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Always good to have have your wife stood in the crowd center and give a little bow to her. <laughs> not that people knew that that's what I was doing. Essential, I would have thought. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was good. And then in amongst all of that, I did a tour on the F-35 as what's called the requirements manager, which was making sure very smart engineers who build these things actually were building it in a way that very, very stupid pilots could fly it. Because what looks good to an engineer doesn't necessarily always look good to a pilot. And our brains are wired differently for sure. So that was my kind of lead role there to make sure the cockpit design was right, the capabilities were right in the jet. And then I subsequently went back after I was one of our very last frontline Harrier squadron commanders. So I had the enormous privilege to lead my squadron in combat. We did one of the last tours in Afghanistan out of Kandahar, providing support to troops in Helmand mostly mostly British troops, although we flew all over. And then we came home and then we had a big defence review in 2010 and the decision was taken to get rid of the Harrier as a effectively a cost-saving measure. So that happened. I then rolled back into F-35 and went to America for three years and lived in DC and was the national director for F-35. And I bought our first F-35, stood up the training programme, kind of got all of that properly going as the jets were now coming off the production line. And then I came home and this is where things kind of took a little bit of a turn because I went to command one of our biggest fighter bases, which was a tornado base. But that tornado base was scheduled to turn into our first F-35 base. So that's why I went there to do the work to take tornado out of service and bring lightning in. That's what we call the F-35s called the lightning. Then ISIS happened. And no one saw that coming. And because that happened and we wanted to try to resolve that problem, we ended up keeping the tornado for quite a few years more than we had anticipated we would need to. So I ended up relearning to fly tornado and flying tornado during the stand-up of all of our counter-ISIS operations into the Middle East, Iraq, and Syria. And then I became the tornado force commander and kept flying tornado for a while. And then I went to the Middle East did a job what's called the CAOC director role, which is running the Air Operations Center in Qatar, where we were right at the height of the counter-ISIS campaign when we were trying to clear them out of Mosul and Raqqa, Darazor, all the way down the Middle Euphrates River Valley uh, in eastern Syria. And we were doing all of that work and I was running all of the air campaigns. So we were putting out about a thousand missions a day. And it was my job to coordinate all of that, make sure that it was being done in the right way. And everything from making sure we had the right amount of air to air refueling fuel, millions of pounds worth of fuel airborne for jets to go and refuel in the sky to doing being the final signature on some of the very highly challenging targets that we had to do that may be in, you know, relatively built up areas and stuff to make sure that we were doing all the right collateral assessments and not not a taking on G risk. And then I came from that job into my last one, which was running what's called One Group, which is all of the combat arm of the Air Force. So all of the fast jets, Air Defence of the UK, the Falklands, all of the ops in the Eastern Baltics, everything we were doing in the Middle East, uh, with about 15,000 people in the group. All the airplanes really, apart from training and the heavy airplanes, the Hercules and the likes, and people from California to Kabul and everywhere in between. 
So that was my last job. And as part of that job, I went and relearned to fly the Typhoon, which is our kind of new air superiority fighter airplane. So I went and learned to fly that uh, just so that I would understand it more since I was kind of commanding the whole Typhoon force as part of that role. And then off the back end of that, I went to space. He went to space. <laughs> it's such an extraordinary story. And a couple of things I'd love to ask. How are you wired, do you think, Harv, to cope with frontline duties? And I always feel it's a bit impolite to ask about any sort of anecdotes that you could share from frontline operations. I'm just wondering how as a person you sort of deal with some of the things that I'm sure you've seen that haven't been very pleasant. Yeah, it's hard. It's especially hard from an airplane because you're in the fight, but you're not in the fight. And I mean, it depends on where you are. I mean, obviously, if it was the Battle of Britain again, you'd be right in the middle of the fight. Um, but a lot of the jobs that we'd have done, so if we take uh, providing close air support for troops on the ground in the likes of Helmand, you know, you would be sat three, four miles above that. So you'd be sat up at, you know, 25,000, 30,000 feet and using all these sensors on your airplane to monitor what's going on in the ground to find where your friendly troops were and to help guide them through, you know, maybe they were patrolling along alleyways and stuff and we could use our sensors to look ahead and say, right, you know, it seems to me like someone's maybe dug a hole there because I can see on an infrared sensor, I can see that earth's been overturned recently because it's colder than all the other earth. So there could be a, there could be a bomb planted there. So you don't go up that alleyway, go up the next alleyway. So we were doing an awful lot of that. People think that you're in there just kind of dropping bombs all the time. And actually, that that's not at all. It was an absolute last resort. And it was few and far between that we would actually do that. We would do what was called graduated response. So if troops on the ground, A, we would try to steer them around in a safe way to get them where they needed to be. We would kind of be that reassurance from above that they knew if they really needed a big hammer, they had us there, you know, we could do everything right up to dropping big bombs, which would generally solve the issue, whatever issue they were in, that would generally solve it for them. But that wasn't always the answer. And a lot of times just flying the jet down low level and flying over the head of the bad guys, scaring them off because they then knew you were there and they couldn't compete against that. So that certainly give enough headroom for our friendly people to either extract or maneuver around or go wherever they wanted to go. So, But probably one of the biggest challenges for me is when you saw things play out and you couldn't, you couldn't necessarily do anything against it. You know, there were many, many times where you're on the radio with you're all plugged into what's going on the ground. They can hear you, you can hear them. And then maybe a big fight's ensuing and people are maybe shot and injured. Maybe people have been killed. They're trying to get a helicopter in with a medical team to pull them out. Every time the helicopter gets close, the bad guys are shooting the helicopter up and they can't get in. And so it becomes, you're, you're kind of sat above all of that, watching it play out. And you want to do something to help. And sometimes you just can't. And that, in many ways, is, is every bit as challenging as being involved because you feel a little bit helpless. That's one side. And you're right, you know, there's a lot of our people get exposed, troops on the ground, to those that fly things in the air. They get exposed to a, a lot of things in war that your normal person working in a lovely building like this shouldn't have to ever see or be exposed to. And, you know, that's 
know, it's interesting because yesterday I did this. I was asked to take a photograph with the poppy on my uniform. We're doing this campaign for the uh, for the British Legion this year on the poppy appeal. And they asked me, why is the poppy important? And that's what this is all about. It's about kind of this overt demonstration to the nation, this little kind of poppy that you wear to remind people that the freedoms that we enjoy here, sat in London, they're hard won, you know, and at some point, some people have had to go out, put themselves in harm's way so that those that are back here can actually have those freedoms. And, you know, not everybody always gets that. And it's important, I think, at least once a year that we put the poppy on and we just take a moment to remember those that went and did it and maybe didn't come home. And all of those that are back here that have got a a hole left in their life that they'll never fill. And you touched there on Afghanistan. Am I right in thinking that that's where you flew Harriers with John Egan? And you mentioned Jet, the John Egan trust that we have in common. Yes. So John and I were good friends. Actually, I was his squadron commander. Um, So effectively, he worked for me. But the reality is we're all buddies, you know, regardless of rank. That's the good thing about a fighter squadron. There is this, yes, there's a rank thing. There's a squadron commander and there's people in various roles of leadership. But the reality is when you strap into an airplane we're, that we're all in this together and it's a one team, one fight affair and we're all very, very good friends because you trust, you just the enormous amount of trust that you're putting in these people, even when you're flying with them and they're flying on your wingtip in weather at night, close formation flying to get somewhere, you know, you're trusting that they're going to do a good job of that and not crash into you both, you know. <laughs> So, uh, you know, John was a good friend of mine and it was incredibly sad when he died in in his uh, airplane accident. When the whole tragedy happened, you know, 10 years ago this year and John sadly died, when Emma said, right, well, I'm going to kind of change tack here, I'm going to stand up this charity and we're going to focus it on John's memory and it's going to be about helping teenagers that just need a bit of help to stay on the right path you know they're maybe just on the cusp or have just fallen off of the right path and they if they're not kind of helped back onto it they could go a little bit waywards and obviously that's where the focus of the John Egging Trust has been now for 10 years and Emma's just been an absolute inspiration to watch how we've been working a lot to try to broaden the base of John Egging Trust which has used a lot of the interaction that with the Royal Air Force, which has just been super in supporting the charity, particularly the Red Arrows, which has just been you know brilliant. But actually, we're just starting now on a little foray into space. And all things being well, we'll, we'll see John Egging Trust start to work more closely with the new spaceport at Cornwall there at New Quay and use that as a conduit to do outreach into the local community for kids through STEM and space. We've also got hooked up into the new spaceport in the Shetland Islands, about as far north as you can go before you hit Norway. Um, and that's a particularly interesting part of the world because it's very rugged and you know, there's not much goes on up there apart from us. But uh, I visited recently, it's just brilliant. You, you go, it's called the Island of Unst. And you go to visit, it's lots of sheep, lots of... Shetland ponies, rather, you know, <laughs> as you would expect. Little Shetland ponies cutting around the place. I think 600-odd crofters who live on the island. And then a spaceport. 
How fantastic. So that, that's the island of Unst. How fantastic. And, uh, you know, they're, yeah, but it's brilliant. Couldn't be more British. You know, I just think that's cracking. And the chap that runs everything up there, Frank Strang, is a, a good guy and he's a real force of nature. And Frank has very kindly uh, had quite a few good conversations with Emma about what could we do with bringing youngsters up to Shetlands where they can do space stuff. They could maybe do a space camp. They can do some out, outward bounds things, do that kind of get out into the elements and properly stretch yourself and find confidence. So yeah, I'm pretty big fan of the John Egging Trust and I think this next decade is going to be it. You've got Brian Cox as well involved, which will also help that go along. So just before we end, because I'm aware I could just have another half Guinness and continue chatting and I hope we will get to do that in, <laughs> yeah. in real life. But before we started to record, we were joshing and chatting about the fact that recently you'd had to put some thought into if you had a dinner party and you could choose three guests with oh, us yes. or deceased, who would you choose? And I am curious, having had our conversation, who you'd like to have dinner with so i chose the first person was margaret thatcher not because of her politics but because i think today and particularly in the military we're working really hard at properly getting our arms around diversity and inclusivity and particularly gender balance and the military as you can imagine has not necessarily been very good at that in decades past. It's been a fairly male-dominated environment. So there's a lot of us that are trying really hard. And, you know, as the father of two brilliant daughters, I would like to hope that wherever they go or whatever they do in the world, they'll at least be given the chance to be their best selves and that they wouldn't in any way be prejudiced against just because they're females. So I'm a big advocate of this work that we're doing and have been quite vocal about it. I think we, we need, we could do even more and we could do it quicker. But I think, you know, if you look back in our history, particularly someone who was right in the public eye, whether you love her or hate her, I think Margaret Thatcher was maybe someone that would have experienced that in her own way as the prime minister coming into a very male dominated world. You can only imagine what that would have been like and how she dealt with that. I'd love to have a conversation with her about that to help put a bit of perspective on some of the conversations we're having about it today. I would also love to talk to her about decision-making in a crisis and properly hear some of her stories from the Falklands War. Because, you know, I think that was an interesting time in our history when government properly stepped up and made a decision and got after it. And I'd love to understand what, you know, how she felt. Right, we're going to do this. We're going to war in the Falklands. Get some ships and let's sail south. Once she'd made that decision and walked out of the room, what did she do then? You know, did she go and have a cup of tea and be very happy with her lot? <laughs> or was she like, oh God, you know, what have I just done? I'd love to have that conversation. The second was a lady called Noor Khan, who was it's not very well known, but she was a special ops executive, so a spy in the Second World War, female RAF operative who went behind enemy lines and did all these amazing things, but ended up being captured and was tortured to the point where she was killed uh, by the Nazis. And she never, never gave anything up. And it was only in later kind of life that as they looked back on that and they did the analysis and all the kind of details came out, they realized that what she went through, stalwart she was there. And I'd love to have a chat to that lady about 
I'm not sure there's that many people around like that these days. There's a certain amount of fortitude required. And then the last person I chose was Serrano Fines, because I think he's awesome. And I think he's awesome, not just because of the things he's done, but I think if you read his books, he tends to talk as much, if not more, about his failures as he does about his successes. And I think if you add it all up, he's probably, I can't stand by this fact, but he's probably failed more often than he succeeded. But he still is happy to go and try to run four marathons in four continents in four days, even after he's just had a heart attack or climb the north face of the agar after he sawed his own fingers off because he didn't like having frostbite anymore. That character, I would love to have dinner with him. And I know he's still, he's a slightly older gentleman now, but I bet you he still has some good stories to tell. And you should try to get him on this podcast. Well, I think that's your new mission. I think I'd like to task you to do that, uh, Vice Marshal. Let's get Serrano fines and you can come along and help produce it. How's that? Deal? Yeah, that sounds like a good challenge, yes. You know, I knew it was going to be a delight to talk to you today. And thanks for finding time because I know your schedule's really, really packed at the minute. But it's been great. And I hope we get that pint sometime because I know that you've got many, many yeah. more stories. But I'll let you get on with the rest of your day. And just massive thank you. You've been amazing. Thanks, Helen. Absolute pleasure. You've been listening to Air Vice Marshal Half Smith, Director Space UK. There are more than 70 Convex conversations in our series, so do download and subscribe at convex.podbean.com, on Spotify, YouTube, Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Join me again next week for another great guest. I'll see you then. Bye for now.